How's everyone going? It's a bit of a stormy night, isn't it? Thanks, guys. We have a breakfast on a Friday morning. I told them to do that, so I'm real stoked, guys. Good follow-through. Love it. Um, yeah, like they said, my name's Michael. I actually have the privilege of working here at the church. I work in the youth department, which was great. Bailey, my wife and I, we moved over from Dutador just over a year ago to, to come here. And it's honestly such a privilege um, to get to do what I do. It's, it's honestly a dream job. And um, you get to see the best of people and you get to see the worst of people. And I, I just love it. Eh? Like I love getting to journey with people through some really hard stuff in life. And, and for me, a highlight um, at the moment in my job is on, like I just said, on a Friday morning, we run a breakfast and this thing's been running for about um, probably a year. And it's really hard to, to motivate teenagers to get out of bed on a good day. But these guys, they rock up to my house at seven o'clock on a Friday morning. It's the end of the week. So I'm just proud of them for turning up. But um, so proud of you guys. There is breakfast. Yes, we have a monster feed. But um, on Friday, I had the privilege of seeing some of these young men step up and actually preach to their friends and encourage their friends and inspire their friends in their walk with the Lord. And I'm a little bit of a crier. And so I had to kind of look away like for a moment because I actually uh, tear up a lot. And so um, that, that's honestly, it's a dream job. I get so excited about it. But more importantly, I, I have the privilege of getting to share with you folk on a Sunday night tonight. And so I don't really want to muck around. Um, I've got a lot to get through. I've got a lot of notes. So um, let's dig in. So we are going through a series at the moment called the Psalter, which means um, the Psalms. It's another name for the Psalms. And pretty much how the schedule's going is we're not going to be preaching through all 150 Psalms. We are, um, there's a few of us that are picking our favourite Psalm or a Psalm that we feel that God's put on our hearts. And we're just going to share about that and unpack that a little bit with you tonight. And so tonight I have chosen Psalm 42. And so that's really where we're going to be spending a lot of time is in Psalm 42. It's at the start of book one, or book two rather, in the Psalms. But um, we're actually not going to go there just yet. We're going to go to Luke. And so if you want to chuck that slide up about Luke, bro, because I think that for me in my walk with God, I read the Bible wrong for a long time. Um, I would get to a chapter like uh, a book like Genesis or Exodus or Leviticus or anything really in the Old Testament. And I was like, man, how does this fit with the bigger picture? How does this fit with the narrative of, of Jesus? How does this fit with the New Testament? I just didn't understand it until I came across this passage in Luke. And this is really what I want us to understand tonight before we go anywhere, because if we miss this, we miss the whole point of the psalm. In Luke 24, verse 44, um, we find Jesus just after his resurrection. So Jesus has been born, obviously. He has lived his perfect life. He has died on the cross for our sin. He has been raised again to new life, defeating death. And then he has this little period of time before he ascends back to heaven. That's where we are. And so Jesus goes and he speaks to some people and he goes and talks to the disciples and he says this. And I think that this is just pinnacle to us reading the Bible together. He says, it says rather, then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then verse 45, and then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Jesus has blatantly said to these disciples that the Old Testament is about me. So every time you go back and read it now, you need to find me in it because it's all pointing to me and what I did on the cross. And so tonight, if we miss that fact and try and unpack any psalm without looking at that, 
we're actually just going to miss it altogether entirely. And so tonight, as we unpack Psalm 42, I want you to just be looking ahead and trying to find Jesus within his words. Now, I don't have time to go through the whole Psalm because it's kind of long and I only have half an hour. So um, we are only going to do four verses, (laughs) which, yeah, strap in. Um, Psalm 42, let's go. Psalm 42, it's in the section of lament, which means sorrow in the Bible. Verse one, as the deer longs for streams of water, so I long for you, O God. I thirst for God, the living God. Where can I go and stand before him? Day and night, I have only tears for food while my enemies continually taunt me saying, where is this God of yours? My heart is breaking as I remember how it used to be. I walked among the crowd of worshipers leading a great procession to the house of God singing for joy and giving thanks amid a a sound of celebration. Verse five, why am I so discouraged? Why is my heart so sad? I will put my hope in God and I will praise him again, my saviour and my God. Verse six, then uh, now I am deeply discouraged, but I will remember you even from the distant Mount Hermon, the source of the Jordan, the land land of Mount Mesa. We just pray with me um, before we really dig into this. Lord God, you are good. Um, Lord, and we are just so um, stoked and privileged to know that you are with us right now. Um, God, just as you prayed and led the disciples 2,000 years ago, God, would you open our minds supernaturally to understand these scriptures? Um, God, we know that this is about you. We know this is about your son. And so God, we don't wanna miss it. And Lord, if there's anything in my notes that I've missed, would you just supernaturally um, bring that to me tonight? Um, as we continue, um, we ask these good things from you because you're a good God. Amen. All right, so just to give a little bit of context around this psalm, the psalm is a little bit debated about where and why and how it was written, but um, we can be assured that it was written. We have it in our Bible, so that's a good place to start. Second thing to note um, is that most commentators seem to think that it was written by David in a very unique season of his life. It was when he was on the run from Saul. So I think that puts a very specific picture around the emotion and feeling that David is going through in this moment. You see, David was someone who was anointed as king from a young age. And then he goes, you know, the next thing he goes and fights Goliath in battle. And what happens? He wins because God's on his side. You know, God through him empowers him to win this battle against Goliath not for his glory, but for his people's glory. Then he moves on and gets asked to come to the, uh, come to the palace and work for the king. You know, things are going good for David. And then all of a sudden, a few changing in situ- a changes in situation, um, David is cast out and now he's being hunted. And now he's fearing for his life and he runs and he hides in the desert, most likely in a cave. And this is where he writes the psalm. So that should really just paint a picture of where we're coming from. He's in a lonely and isolated place. And unpacking the Psalms is a little bit different or quite different from, say, something like Paul's letters because Paul is writing to a specific group of people, probably about a specific problem more than likely. Jesus is addressing things in person. But that's not the way the Psalms are written. The Psalms is not necessarily directive or correcting It's an expression, a snapshot of how this person is feeling in a particular moment. It's like a picture. And so as we look through Psalm 42, we can see a snapshot of David in a moment and how he feels and how he wrestles out this tension and actually what he's modeling to us in the process. And so there's really one thing that I want us to get away, uh, get out of tonight. And it's 
this idea or this question of can we be passionate followers of, of Jesus, sorry, can we be passionate followers of Jesus while struggling with doubt? Can we be passionate, zealous, strong followers of Jesus while struggling with doubt? So let's have a look. Let's, let's dig in uh, to this psalm and see what we can get. Mike um, came up to me just before the service and said, you know, Mike, um, I'm really expecting some you know, meat and potatoes from this sermon. You know, I really want some good, strong stuff going on. So I'm trying, man. <laughs> I'm trying. Verse 1 and 2. As the deer longs for streams of water, so I long for you, O God. I thirst for God, the living God. Where can I go and stand before him? Why does David choose to use this analogy of a deer? It's really interesting. Something I had to scratch my head at for a little while there. He could have chosen a whole bunch of different animals that are thirsty. All animals need drink, water. (laughs) Um, Why did he choose a deer? I think for him... In Jerusalem, deer was probably quite a common animal, but now being isolated and in the desert, a deer is not an animal that you would find in the wilderness. And so we would know that if a deer was in the wilderness, there's not much water there. And so the desperation that you would see in this animal as it hungers and it thirsts for this water really captures the emotion that David is trying to express in verse two, as he says, I thirst for God, the living God. Animals need drink, but specifically deers in that situation become so passionate and so, um, well, they just really need drink, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Um, for me, in uh, 2015, I had a real blessing in my life where I had a kidney transplant. And um, this really weird thing happened for me as I had this kidney transplant, whereas before I had it, I would drink probably up to five or six litres of water a day. And I was just constantly thirsty, constantly thirsty all the time. It's like I couldn't quench this thirst because my body wasn't hydrating itself properly. And this really weird thing happened that when I had my kidney transplant, I all of a sudden didn't need to drink water anymore. I didn't feel the need. I didn't feel the urge anymore. And it's something that I had to switch into a discipline because with my new kidney, it's over here now. It's not on my back. I've got three of them. Um, yeah. Um, It needs to stay hydrated. It needs to have liquid constantly running through it so it's doing something. And when it doesn't, it starts to freak out. And so I don't get thirsty in the same way that most people get thirsty. When I'm thirsty now, I literally feel this pain down here in my advent that says that I need a drink. And so I know that I'm dehydrated. I know that I really desperately need to go and get some water going on because my my body actually physically aches. And this passion, this drive, this, this urgency to pursue God is what David is trying to persu- uh, portray at the start of the psalm. And I thought that I could probably sum this up a little bit better by looking at someone else who is just all in passionate about pursuing Jesus, and that's Paul. Now, Paul's a pretty easy guy to go to um, because he just did some, such radical things. Um, If you don't know the story of Paul, he was once named Saul. He was a Pharisee, which is a keeper of the law. And he went and um, took it upon himself to go and murder Christians, essentially. Um, He had his reasons that he thought, but um, Jesus himself went and converted him. And um, he changed ways to being arguably the most passionate man in the Bible. 
And um, I want us just to take a look at what true passion looks like from a biblical perspective. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, we see this argument that Paul's having with the church in Corinth about how um, it's, this section is Paul defends his ministry. And so he's obviously getting critiqued a little bit. And in verse 23, we read this. It says, Are they servants of Christ? I know I sound like a madman, um, but I have served him far more. I have worked harder. I've been imprisoned more. Uh, I've been put in prison more often. I have been whipped times without number, faced death again and again. Five times the Jewish leaders gave me 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. Once I, was, I went a whole night without a whole night and day adrift at sea. I have traveled on many long journeys. I have faced danger from rivers and robbers. I have faced dangers from my own people, the Jews, as well as from the Gentiles. I have faced dangers in the cities and in the deserts and on the seas. I have faced danger from men who claim to be believers, but are not. I have, I have worked hard and long, endured many sleepless nights. I have been hungry and thirsty and gone without food. I have shivered in the cold um, without enough clothing to keep me wa uh, warm. Besides all of this, then besides all of this, I have the daily burden of my concerns for all the churches. I'm not sure what you did on your Easter weekend, but a bunch of us went across to Easter camp in Mystery Creek. And um, I was involved in planning it, so I kind of shot myself in the foot with what I'm about to tell you. But we got there and it was cold. Like it was so cold. And I had like this legit sleeping bag for summer from Kmart. And that was about it. <laughs> You know, and so I was wrapped up in this bed with like a beanie on, two hoodies, like three jerseys. Like, I was like, honestly, I was so cold. I like worked out this technique that if you like put the little hood on and then like just constantly breathe to get your own air into the sleeping bag, it kind of keeps you a little bit warmer all night. But it, it was just so cold, and we just didn't know that it was going to be cold, and so. Yeah, it was, a, it was a big issue across the whole camp. But that was like three nights or something. Like Paul is saying that he, that's one thing that he went through. You know, and I was ready to go home <laughs> just from Easter camp. You know, Paul's not running away from this. You know, being shipwrecked and being adrift at sea for a day. Okay, God, I've probably done enough now. You know, you can use someone else to go and preach your message. No, Paul is so convinced He's so passionate, like a deer chasing water. He is after it. It's insane. It's insane. So what do the things that we're passionate about, what do the things that we're passionate about really say about our love for God? What do the things that we're passionate about really say about our love for God? How many of you guys have seen Endgame? <laughs> For those of you that don't know what Endgame is, um, there's a comic book series by this thing called Marvel. And over the last 10 years, they have released 22 or 23 movies that all tell one giant story that has finished just recently at the, at the movies in this crescendo of a picture called Endgame. And um, that's a lot of movies, if you didn't know. I worked out that that's 48 hours and 40 minutes of viewing time. Um, so this is 10 years ago. How old was I 10 years ago? Like 13 or 14. And I remember probably watching every single one of these movies at, at the actual movie theatres. 
and then watching them probably again five more times at home, you know, over the last 10 years. I've seen these movies a lot, so I'm real guilty, so I'm dogging myself when I say this. But I know some people that binged all these movies (laughs) in a row just before this movie came out because they were so passionate about going and seeing this final movie. (laughs) It's insane. I'm just trying to make the point. We We get passionate about things. So... As Kiwis, we don't like to think we do get passionate about things, but I think in life, um, the reality is is that we get passionate about things that are really, really stupid. And I think in, like, in comparison, it is. It's nothing. And in, um, in our Western culture, we seem to grow numb to the things that are important because we have so much. And there's this really awesome quote by this guy called Matthew, Matthew Henry. When I was sound checking tonight, I was trying to say this because it's a real tongue twister, so you need to bear with me. But I, I think it's an incredible quote. He sums it up really well by saying this. Sometimes God teaches us effectually to know the worth of mercies by the want of them and whets our appetite for means of grace by cutting short those means. We are apt to loathe manner when we have plenty of it which will be very precious to us if we ever come to know the scarcity of it. We're so passionate about things and put our hope in things that's not in God. And what David is trying to encourage us in in the first two verses of the psalm is what are we passionate about? What are we pursuing? Are we pursuing God like a deer chase after water? Are we after the living God or are we just after his stuff? He goes then into verse three and four and he takes the same sort of approach but from a different angle. He says this in verse three, day and night I have only tears for food while my enemies continually taunt me saying, where is this God of yours? My heart is breaking. So I remember how it used to be. I walked among the crowds of worshippers, a great procession to the house, leading a great procession to the house of God, singing for joy, giving thanks amid a sound of a great celebration. What David is saying here is he used to be in church. He used to turn up to life group. He used to maybe raise his hands in the service, you know. He used to have this real good community around him and now he can't for whatever reason. We know that he was running away from Saul, but for whatever reason, he's not in that place anymore and he misses it and he knows that those things are important to his faith, but not only is he just far away from this in a faraway land we learn in verse six, but he is also being mocked for his faith. And so he's setting us up here with this question of why does doubt paralyze our faith? Is it that we don't feel worthy when we struggle with God? David in this moment is lacking God's provision for his life, but let's be real, we doubt God in lots of different ways. You know, maybe it is like David, it's provision. Maybe it's a bigger question about our salvation in general. Is is what Jesus did on the cross enough for me? You know? This is such a real thing. And that's why I picked this psalm because I think it actually resonates with something deep inside of us. I think it's really important to ask this question, why does faith, uh, why does doubt paralyze us? Because the reality is, is that it does. As soon as we struggle with doubt, even if it's just a whisper, we back off, oh no, I'm not good enough to go be with them anymore. Or I'm not good enough to serve there. You know? I think it's really important to look at heroes in the faith and see how they reacted to these situations. And so Rob brought up Charles Spurgeon last week, so I thought I'd continue with quoting the, this uh, man. And so if you don't know who Charles Spurgeon is, he was a preacher in London in the 1800s and did some very incredible things. Um, and he says this, and this is when he was in his 20s or 30s. Um, 
He says this, I confess here with sorrow that I have seasons of despondency and depression of spirit in which I trust none of you are called to suffer. And in such times I have doubted my interest in Christ, my calling, my election, my perseverance, my Saviour's blood and my Father's love. This guy was preaching every Sunday to what we would consider now to be a megachurch. And he struggled with these things. So I think the only place that we can go now is to see how Jesus actually reacts to our doubt. Because when we understand how Jesus reacts to our doubt, it frees us up to actually live the life that God calls us to live. God is not looking at our service. He's not looking at our works and then deciding to love us. He's deciding to love us and then encouraging us to go and do stuff. And so let's look at Mark chapter nine together. I don't actually have this on the screen, so you guys are gonna have to crack a Bible. So do that, Mark chapter nine, verse 16. You can do it on your phones. I trust you that you're not gonna check Facebook. How much time do I have left? Seven minutes, sweet. <laughs> um, Mark chapter nine. So here we find Jesus and I see the scene is awesome. We had um, Ian Foster come and share with us the other night, he talked to us a lot about rugby and leadership and stuff. It was awesome. As a man that didn't grow up knowing a lot about rugby, I felt very enlightened to the sport. Um, but this is like the rugby club rooms, you know? The team is together. They're on the top of the mountain of transfiguration and Moses and Elijah are there and the disciples are like freaking out because there's some real cool stuff going down. They see Jesus finally in his glory. He's in his robe of white. white, And they're just really excited to go and do stuff. And so they're like, man, this Jesus guy we're following, he's actually you know, who he said he is and we finally see it. And now we're gonna come down from this mountain and we're gonna cast out some demons and we're gonna go and heal the sick and do all these things that Jesus has called us to do. And so they're essentially having this big hype up moment in the club rooms, you know, getting ready to go out onto the field. And then we see at the start of Mark chapter nine that they're heading down the mountain, they're running out onto the field and they encounter a crowd of people. And I love what happens because they lose straight away. They straight up cark it. And I find so, I'm just so encouraged by that because that is my story over and over and over again. And anyway, and so Jesus, he's the coach. He's like, oh my goodness, like I'm gonna have to come out and fix this situation now. And so he goes and says this in verse 16, this is where we're going from. Um, what are you arguing about? Because the disciples had let some people down and they, it was causing a ruckus. What are you arguing about? He asked. A man from the crowd answered, teacher, I brought you my son, who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground and he foams at the mouth. He gnashes his teeth and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive the spirit out and they could not. Disciples, they're letting people down. Let's check out Jesus' response to this situation. You unbelieving generation, he replied, how long should I, shall I have to stay with you? How long should I have to put up with you? That's directly to the disciples <laughs> because they, they already screwed up. And then Jesus goes in and he fixes the situation. Bring me the boy. So they brought him to him. And when Jesus, or when the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw, threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground, rolled around, uh, foaming at the mouth. Jesus then asked the, uh, Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It often throws him into the fire and water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. I don't know what your story is and where your struggles are with God, but this man just looked Jesus straight in the face 
and doesn't believe that he can do something. This is Jesus, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. He had already gotten a reputation for doing miracles all around you know, Jerusalem and Israel. And this man looks square at the Son of God in the face and doubts whether he can do anything. Now, I don't know how bad you feel like your doubt is and what things you wrestle with, but I don't think anyone can probably beat this situation. I love that this is in the Bible. How does Jesus respond? Let's continue reading. Um, he responds with sarcasm. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for the one who believes. Immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. And so the question that we have to ask us is when we struggle with doubt, just like David did when he was alone and isolated, what is Jesus' response to us? Is it rejection? Is it condemnation? Is it judgment? Is it isolation or is it mercy? Is it love? Is it hope? Is it purpose? Is it a future? When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit, you deaf and mute spirit. I said, he said, I command you to come out of him and never enter him again. Jesus is not immobilized by our doubt. Jesus is not worried about our doubt. Jesus still loves us and cares about us and is inviting us into life, even though we struggle, even though we trip up, even though we are isolated sometimes and alone, Jesus is still right here. And this is what David is trying to say. Charles Spurgeon wrote some 30 odd years later, um, about this previous quote that I said, he said, I t- um, I've told you that before, some years ago, I fell into a great depression of spirit. I knew in whom I had believed, but somehow could not get comfort out of the truth that I preached. I began to wonder whether I was really saved. And having a holiday and being away from home, I went to a Wesleyan chapel and a local preacher occupied the pulpit that morning. And while he preached a sermon full of the gospel, the tears flowed from my eyes and I was in such a perfect delirium. Oh, the joy in hearing the gospel, which is so sel- which I so seldom have the opportunity of doing that I said, oh yes, there is spiritual life within me for the gospel can touch my heart and it can stir my soul. This is Jesus' heart towards us. Jesus came and he lived a sinless life. And he died on the cross for the redemption of our sins, but he didn't just die, he rose again. I've been thinking about how I wanted to end tonight Um, because there's so many things that that kind of leaves me to kind of do. You can be passionate, sold out for Jesus and still struggle with doubt because Jesus is not worried about our performance. Jesus is not restricted by what we think of him. He continues to empower us and love us and lead us and invite us into life, even when we struggle, even when things don't make sense, even when we go through hard times. And Jesus didn't just leave and and leave us alone, that he left us something incredible, what the Bible calls his bride, which is the church, which is every single person in this room that we are called to love one another and call one another. You see, we don't struggle and doubt alone. We struggle and doubt together. I think the more that we realise that, the more we can just lay down our pride and be the church that God calls us to be. We're not a perfect church. I'm certainly not a perfect man, but Jesus is a perfect God. Um, 
And so if I could just have the keyboard player out, I think, and this is normally where someone sets something up kind of weird, but I think I only want the keyboard player to come out so that um, we can pray for each other and we don't hear necessarily each other if things are personal. What I really want to encourage you to do, um, we can't deny the fact that doubt is so immobilizing that doubt just stops us in our tracks and stops us from pursuing God, stops us from loving others, stops us from preaching the gospel, stops us from doing what God's calling us to do. And so tonight, before we leave, I just really want us to pray for one another because the staff at this church aren't special. We're not any closer to God than any of you. And so um, if that's you and um, you're struggling with doubt or you just want more passion and more zeal to follow Jesus, I just encourage you to turn to the people that are around you and just ask for prayer. It takes a moment of boldness. It takes a moment of courage and a loss of pride sometimes to actually recognise you maybe don't have it as all together as you think you do. But remember that we're not here to be awesome. We're here to worship a God that is awesome. And so... I think I'll just leave it there and pray, but um, that's how I think we should maybe spend the next 15 minutes so together. Um, it's just in that space of praying for one another and, um, and loving one another. If you just close your eyes, I'll bow your heads. Lord God, we just thank you for being in this place. Lord, we thank you that through this psalm that David penned while he was alone and vulnerable and scared, Lord, that we can learn more about your character. Lord, we can learn about more about who you are and so, God, I pray that you would just fill this place right now, God, that you would soften our hearts. Lord, that we would be the church that you call us to be. Lord, a church that's not perfect, but a church that's willing to just listen to your voice as you lead us. God, I pray for people to have courage as they share boldness, as they pray, God, and that you would be glorified and people would fall more in love with you through this moment. We can ask these good things of you because you're a good God. Amen.